Hi, Rich. Thanks for filling everybody in. This is Sarah Reif, and I am filling in for Karen Adabani, who is snowed in. I'll be interviewing 4th District Supervisor Dan Dirty today, but before we get started, I've got a quick road update for you from the Caltrans Facebook page. Route 175 in Mendocino County is fully closed due to downed trees and traffic incidents on the Hopland grade, approximately four miles east of Old Hopland Road. From the Caltrans website, 101 is closed from 4.2 miles north of the east junction of Route 20.8 miles south of Willits in Mendocino County due to snow. Motorists are advised to use an alternate route. Um, 101 is also closed six miles north of Willits to one mile south of Arnold. Due to downed trees, motorists are advised to use an alternate route. 101 is also closed from 1.6 miles north of Laytonville to the junction of 271 in Cummings due to snow. Motorists are advised to use an alternate route. And in Lake County on 175, chains are required on all vehicles except four-wheel drive vehicles with snow tires on all four wheels from 2.8 miles east of the south junction of Route 29 at Forestry Station Access Road to 4.6 miles west of the north junction of Route 29 in Lake County. So now I'd like to introduce our guest, 4th District Supervisor Dan Dirty. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you, Sarah, and thank you, KZWX, for letting me be on the air. Yeah. Well, let's jump right in. You are the longest-serving supervisor now, and you're the chair of the board this year. So let's start out with just a little bit of an educational blurb about how items end up on the agenda, how do they end up on the consent calendar, just just a little a little process rundown. Uh, sure. The um, consent calendar is, is supposed to be con consist of items that are non-controversial and often items that are returning uh, from a previous discussion. Uh, so, again, they're supposed to be non-controversial. And then the um, other items on the agenda can be placed on the agenda by any county department or by a county supervisor. And yesterday there was a little bit of controversy about an item that ended up on the agenda a little bit after the other items, and it was this years-long, long-running discussion about the water project in Boonville. So how did, how did that item end up on the agenda at the time that it did? Oh, yeah. So um, we have discussed that item before, and so I think some of us thought it was non-controversial. Um, Supervisor um, Williams, who represents Boonville, had uh, placed it on the agenda, and we thought it was going to be on the consent counter, but anyway, it was a separate discussion item, and we had some members of the um, Fairgrounds board who were um, opposed to the item. Uh, I'll just, maybe just a little background. So um, the Anderson Valley Community Service District has more than $30 million in state grant dollars to build both a water and a wastewater system for downtown Boonville. And they are looking for um, suitable sites for that water and wastewater system um, to be located. And uh, they've come up with some um, relatively innovative, uh, newer technologies that take a much smaller footprint. Um, and so they're, they wanted to do soil samples on the county uh, fairgrounds at, at downtown Boonville um, to see if that was a suitable location. Um, and so we were simply authorizing um, the soil samples to, to proceed. And um, Valerie Hanelt from the Community Services District came on and said, um, you know, we have all these fire hydrants for the drinking water portion and the fire suppression. Has any of this project um, come into being yet or is it still in the planning phases? My understanding is in the planning stage at this point. That's what I thought. So I was just confused when she used the present tense about having all these fire hydrants. I thought, I, had, I don't think I've seen all those fire hydrants. Um, so that's, of course, in the 5th District, which is your colleague's district. Um, but you are in the 4th District. And so can you talk about what your priorities are for this year? What would you like to see happen? Well, I definitely want to make sure that that we're fully staffing all of our county departments um, where uh, where we have holes in in that staffing. Um, so maybe I could just back up just a little bit. Uh, we know that we're all living through this COVID recession, and and we've seen some businesses go under, and it's been really tough on everyone. Um, some people might ask, well, so how's county government doing in terms of its finances? And um, remarkably enough, um, the county's um, finances are doing pretty well. 
Um, I mean, uh, we had built up $37 million in reserves going into the recession, um, expecting at some point there would be a recession, not knowing it would be in this way. And we had already put in place a soft hiring freeze, which meant that before any one position was filled, it had to be justified um, to the CEO's office um, by that department. And so when when uh, June 30th, the fiscal year closed um, during the recession, we actually had $4 million more in our revenues uh, than had gone out in expenses. So the county is actually doing fairly well. In addition, we have one-time funding that came from a settlement with PG&E, and that was about $22 million, which we haven't spent any of that. Um, I'm hoping that, and I think the board agrees, that, we're, that we'll target those funds um, for things that will have long-lasting I- improvements, whether it's improvements to our telecommunication system for public safety or it's um, for some economic development that will um, have a five- to 20-year payback. Um, so... Not, in other words, not just spending it on operating costs, but on some things that have a long-term yield for the county. So anyway, the county ha- is in a position to really reinvest and and help um, kind of transform the economy. I think we've all seen with COVID where people are working remotely. Um, my understanding from talking to realtors is that they're finding people who want to move to Mendocino County from other areas and telecommute from, from home. Um, so I think we're seeing maybe an acceleration of something that was already happening in Mendocino County. And um, so uh, and so I, I like to look for the um, glass half full rather than glass half empty. I, th- I think there's an opportunity here that we could, if we seize it, we could um, help to give a boost to the economy as we come out of the COVID recession. And before we, we explore that in a little bit more detail, I want to let our listeners know that if you have questions for Supervisor Dan Jurdy, you can call in at 895-2448, and I'll let you know when we open up the phone lines. Um, so one of the priorities that you've had for a long time is planning and building and affordable housing. And um, yesterday, even though you're the chair, you put yourself on an ad hoc committee to try to restructure planning and building services. And of course, it's hard to restructure something if you don't have enough people. So can you talk about some of your ideas with using this money and this new ad hoc committee to restructure planning and building? Um, Yeah, well, so the county planning department, so the planning and building department both run, uh, provides planning services and building inspection services. The building, uh, we have a uh, chief building inspector, we have a chief planner, um, and then below them are obviously quite a few building inspectors and or planners. And uh, the planning, on the planning side, there has historically been a leader in the coast office because you have the um, very complicated coastal development permits that are issued in the coastal zone. And then you have in Ukiah office, there's uh, a, a senior planner over there, as well as a chief planner. And, um, and then the, historically, there was also an advanced planning division. So things like when we have these discussions about cannabis, we're often amending the code, that would have been developed by the advanced planning team because you're changing the code. And um, so I'm hoping that we'll reevaluate and reconsider establishing the um, advanced planning team because um, I think right now it's it's been paired back to the point where I think the department seems to be struggling um, to keep up with the requests of the board to make changes to the code. The other thing is um, the city of Fort Bragg, I was on the city council there for a long time, I, I think had a good practice of planning staff when someone would come to the planning department and say, I want to do this. And occasionally um, the planning staff would say, well, you know, the code doesn't allow you to do that because um, this part of the code over here I can't actually think of a good reason for the, why that's in the code, but it, there it is. And they would they would then keep a running list like that and bring it back to the city council. I'm not aware that the county planning staff is doing that, and I want to make sure that that uh, that they are keeping that running list and making routine minor adjustments to the to the code as they see problems, maybe unintended consequences to languages in the in the code. So it sounds like. Um what you're thinking of is not only fully staffed planning offices on the coast and inland in Ukiah, but um, it's a whole separate set of personnel dealing with the long range planning versus the over the counter stuff. 
Exactly. Yeah. We need, need to be able to do both because they're both very important. Obviously, to someone who's got an application, um, again, the coastal development permits are, are more complicated because you're, you're following the county's coastal plan, which is approved by the Coastal Commission. There's just a whole slew of plants that have to be evaluated that aren't evaluated uh, inland um, outside of the coastal zone. And um, so there's also a long lead time. So one of the things I'm hoping to see uh, for the uh, for all permits um, is I would like uh, to see how long did it take to get from um, complete application to uh, approval. So if it goes to the planning commission or the coastal development permit administrator, you know, was it a year? Was it two years before uh, since it was submitted to the county? Um, it, anyway, I'd like to keep, keep track of that. Right, and this is the kind of um, stuff that sometimes makes people's eyes glaze over, but is really necessary so that the organization is not just lurching from one disaster to the next. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we certainly have had the fires, and now we've got COVID, and this course is on a whole different scale because it's gone on for nearly a year now, and it will certainly go over a year. So. Again, I want to make sure that we're, we've got the staffing um, that we, we need to take on the projects we want to um, develop. So, for example, in the CEO's office, um, there historically was an, uh, an assistant CEO and then four deputy CEOs. Um, for over two years now, I think over three years, we haven't had an assistant CEO. So, we've had four deputy CEOs and without a, an assistant CEO. Um, the way I look at it, like, you know, there are projects that are just not moving forward at a, at a good clip because there just isn't the bodies. And right now we're down to three deputy CEOs. So um, just, and of course, dealing with COVID, which is just one extra thing that the county is dealing with. Well, let me reintroduce you. Um, I'm talking with Supervisor Dan Jurdy from the 4th District, and it looks like we've got our first caller. Rich, can you bring in our caller? Caller, you're live on the air. Hi. Hi, I was wondering if part of that two million or is it twenty million um, money that we receive from PG&E could be used to pay PG&E bills. Um, I called the city. <clears throat> uh, well, anyways, I, I asked about um, money that we could find to pay these PG&E bills because there are a lot of people without work unable to pay their bills? That's a great question. Um, I, I think le legally it's possible. Um, so again, we're, we haven't had our discussion yet about how to spend the money. I mean, my hope is we're, we'll spend the money, or at least the vast majority of it, on um, things that have long-term, um, you know, yield long-term results. So, um, but, but that certainly is a possibility. Right now, where people have lost jobs, they have no work, they have no ability to pay for their bills. And right now, uh, you know, we have to think about it every single day, every night. Uh, imagining last night the the storm uh, that happened, and uh, thinking about maybe losing their electricity and how it would be to to be without electricity. And then thinking about um, having to live without heat. Yeah. So, so um, Supervisor Jordy, what kinds of projects are you thinking that we could use that money for? Are you thinking of um, like infrastructure projects or or more on the? Yeah. So, for example, um, the county um, maintains the telecommunication system for all of the public safety agencies, including the fire departments. Uh, they use it. The Cal Fire, um, and the city police departments all use it to communicate throughout the whole county. And it has, I think it's more than $10 million in deferred maintenance. It just needs to be replaced. There's, It's made up of equipment that they, they're buying off eBay from some used equipment surplus someplace else and they're having a tough time even re buying replacement parts so it's really time that for the county to replace that telecommunication system and right now we don't have the ability to pay for it uh, other than maybe this funding source that we're talking about um, we certainly don't want to be charging the fire departments um, they don't have the money to pay for it so um, so anyway so there are things like that that are you know maybe not terribly sexy but they they need to continue to function when do you think that that will come before the board to make a decision about it? 
well, I think it should definitely be this year. I don't know exactly when it'll be. Um, we uh, sort of sequentially, we have a re- uh, review of the um, performance review of the CEO. Um, that'll take place in that, in doing that, we, what we end up doing is we establish goals and priorities for the CEO and for the organization that then will then lead into a strategic planning for the whole organization, which will be obviously done in public. And I believe that following that, we would then be, um, making, um, decisions, priorities for, um, the $22 million settlement from PG&E. Okay. Okay. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you also was that earlier this week, the board was starting to work on a huge overhaul of the cannabis program. And you're the the one remaining supervisor who was working on the original ordinance. So what are your thoughts on the, the new ideas to align the county's program more closely with the state and have discretionary permits and kind of bring phase one folks into phase three What's your your vision of how the cannabis program is going to start to look this year? Well, there definitely seems to be the consensus that this is the way to go. Uh, I, I believe we had we had the system set up originally so that if you met the different criteria, you did not need to get a discretionary permit because that was what applicants were saying they wanted. They wanted just a yes or no to get the permit. I think what we've found over time is that that um, that that meant that some many perhaps many sites could not meet all of those standards and and needed um to to have the ability for the county to put special conditions on their projects um so to mitigate um issues that were unique to their properties so um originally i believe the request was that we not have discretionary permits um and we tried that system but it ultimately it created too many problems uh, for some people to get their permit and so now we're going to go to uh, discretionary permits, which means there could be special conditions placed on individual individual sites. And I think in the, the original ordinance, there were requirements for various reviews, like the sensitive species reviews by state agencies, but there wasn't money set aside to pay the biologists from the state agencies to do all this work. So is this new ordinance that's more closely aligned with the state going to make it more practicable for the county to work with the state agencies and, and um, get all these, all these super detailed requirements in order organized. Yeah. So when you have an application for a, a, a discretionary permit that requires that kind of review, it's the applicant that pays for that site-specific uh, analysis. Um, there is the the state has created a um, equity program uh, for people who were um, harmed in some way during the um, war on drugs, and so um, though if someone is eligible for that, we the county has obtained some, uh, several millions of dollars in, in grants, and we hope to um, to help them pay for some of these expenses if they qualify under that program. So how, what is the progress on that, on that equity program? I haven't heard a whole lot yet. I I believe it, you know, it's, it's a work in progress. Um, I don't believe planning a building has, uh, and the cannabis division is, you know, rolled out all the details yet, but um, there it's, it's in the works. Okay. Um, And there is another huge long lasting issue, which is the measure B. Um, Citizens Oversight Committee, which is now moving into having um, an architect, Nocton Lewis, design some mental health facilities. And uh, yesterday we heard a bit of an update from Allison Bailey, who's the program manager of the Measure B Committee. And um, it sounded like the board was pretty dissatisfied with the amount of information that they got from Ms. Bailey. So can you talk about what information you would like to hear and um and who else you think should be providing this information to the board? Uh, yeah, so I, I certainly don't blame her for the information we have. The, the county is paying millions of dollars uh, to Nocton Lewis, which is an architectural firm, to um, uh, design and, and manage these projects. And um, they, as I was trying to break up the meeting, they certainly would have project management software that would that would be showing that they could provide to the board showing us updates with the project. So I think the, the issue really is we just need to get that information out of the architects um, and get it and get it to the public and to the board as to the status of those different buildings that they're designing. And also um, uh, 
the same firm is actually hired by the county to uh, manage a, a major ex, um, annex to the county jail. And, um, and although that's not specifically a mental health facility, um, my understanding is that roughly 30% of all people who are in jails across America have either serious mental health or substance abuse or, or both issues um, who are in the jails. And why I bring this up is because the new jail expansion, which is a $27 million facility, um, $25 million of which is coming from the state, um, will have, I believe, greatly improved um, uh, medical care for the inmates in that new wing. Um, all the inmates in that wing will have um, be in a line of sight from the, the staff working there so that um, it's just a much more modern facility. It'll actually include a little uh, dental uh, facility in, in that wing of the jail. It'll also include um, uh, medical staff in that in that wing. And also, um, if someone were to visit someone in the jail, whether they're in that wing or the old wing of the jail, they would meet in that new wing in a, in a much safer environment. Um, so there's... Um, we have a number of ways in which um, the county, I, I believe, is going to be um, improving mental health services once these facilities are up and running. What's the timeline for the jail? Uh, it will be uh, built in the next four years. I know that. I don't know if it'll be three years or, or four, but it'll be up and running in the next four. And Noctimus is also designing the critical residential treatment facilities, um, and we're supposed to have a a few different facilities, and I believe one is going to be in Ukiah. Uh, do you know if there are any other facilities anywhere on the coast or in other parts of the county? Well, we have discussed um, a very small-scale facility, um, possibly on the coast, um, but, but those decisions have been made. I think the Measure B Committee still um, needs to make their recommendations. Right, and I want to let our listeners know that the Measure B Committee is meeting today at 1 o'clock, and one of the items on the agenda will be a discussion of using Old Howard Hospital as a psychiatric health facility. Um, we've got another caller. Okay, Great. caller, you're live on the air. Great, thanks a lot. So I want to jump back uh, quickly to the PG&E situation, and that is that recently I applied for a 200-amp panel and uh, found out after I was getting the um, it checked off by the city that everything was done right with my panel, et cetera, but that the line coming into my house from PG&E was uh, suitable for 40 amp, and it was aluminum wire, and that a lot of the old houses in Fort Bragg have this really old um, small wire that, given today's needs in electricity, is really dangerous. And uh, when I called the PG&E engineer, she said, well, if you have a brownout or situation looks dangerous, well, then just get back to us. Well, everybody, the electricians and two people in the city both said, yep, that's really common, and we don't really know what you can do about it, and uh, yep, it is dangerous. And and I would like to see some money uh, being put into upgrading the uh, electricity needs for all these old houses in Fort Bragg. Um, and that's all. I uh, just wanted to put that out there. Thank you very much for all your work. Thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate that comment. Um, there's just, there, it's really sad how old some of this infrastructure is. Um, I hear, I'm, I'll take that also to the Snow McLean power port. So PG, as most people realize, they maintain the power lines. And so whether you're a PG customer and you're buying your power from PG or whether you're buying your power from Snow McLean power, you're paying over half of your bill for the maintenance of the power lines that PG maintains. And, um, what we saw with the, the fires, um, uh, especially the ones in Sonoma County, there were old power lines that were just not maintained properly that were um, really vulnerable to, um, to, to strong winds. And um, so anyway, so I will bring it up also with, with snow clean power in case they have the ability to um, at least communicate that to, to PG&E about the, um, the inadequacy of, of their infrastructure. Um, I, I'm actually building a, a, a very small house in Fort Bragg and I, um, as uh, that, I'm, I have fire sprinklers, and so it's, I'll be one of only two houses in my neighborhood that has fire sprinklers. And the the water pressure in my neighborhood is so low that um, I'll probably have to pay extra for um, a tank that'll increase the water pressure to the sprinklers. So there's just all sorts of examples where infrastructure is just so 
inadequate that um, we we all have extra costs uh, because the infrastructure isn't uh, performing the way it's supposed to. Thank you. And it sounds like we've got another caller. Caller, you're live on the air. Hello. um, I don't know if you're the right person to be asking about, but um, there's going to be a lot of new homeless people pretty soon unless something drastic happens. And is there any planning for that? Because the people that are going to be homeless have probably never been homeless, and it's not as easy as you might think. So I was just wondering if that's anywhere in the works, if something's going to be, if if something collapses like the housing and nobody can have a place to be, what are they going to do? So um, I I follow the housing issue really closely, and the state of California is um, trying to monitor the the amount of of unpaid rent in California. The latest figure I saw was um, something over um, a billion dollars in unpaid rent. Um, So as you know, in California, um, if someone pays 25% of their rent um, since I think it was September, they, they can't be evicted, at least not for the reason of not paying their rent. Um, but when this whole COVID situation's um, concluded, obviously there's going to be a lot of rent due. So the state is looking at, and I think it's going to take some federal assistance, um, is looking at some sort of global settlement fund to landlords so that um, there's been some discussion of like, well, if landlords were to take 70 cents on the dollar or some percentage of the, of the amount owed, that um, that they would just settle the, the the back rent with their their tenants and people would would not be evicted when COVID's over. So I really hope that the federal government, and the state government, um, can um, come up with some money for that um, because at some point the landlords are going to have to be paid um, because uh, when COVID's over, we're, we are going to see a, a number of people um, evicted. Thanks, and we have another call on the line. Caller, you're live on the air. Uh, is that me? Yep, Hi. that's you. Uh, not to take away from the homeless issue, which is awful, um, I would like to reflect back to the uh, previous caller uh, two ago about the infrastructure of the electric in Fort Bragg, and I'm wondering if there are plans for upgrading so that more electric vehicles uh, can be charged easily. Um, my property does not have off-street parking, and so I can't actually plug an electric vehicle in to charge on my property because I would have to run the line across the sidewalk. So um, I'm just wondering if there are plans both in Fort Bragg and Ukiah for um, increasing the availability of uh, charging for electric vehicles. Thank you. So, yeah, um, we have a number of different um, agencies that have been installing electric car chargers. Uh, So the state parks received a grant a few years ago and Mendocino Land Trust installed, I think it was about 20 different, um, at at about 20 different parks, they installed uh, car chargers. And I believe they also installed one at the Casper Community Center for um, because near a, a state park, um, the city of Fort Bragg has, I believe, uh, installed one or two um, in city parking lots, um, and uh, Sonoma Clean Power actually has uh, um, obtained grants to install uh, um, electric car chargers in public places. It sounds like what you're talking about is is maybe a, a car charger in a residential neighborhood. Um, I don't know your exact situation, but I've seen in a different neighborhood in Fort Bragg where someone had installed a car charger behind their sidewalk, so in their yard, and that they could then charge their car parked on the street. So um, so I have seen that in, in town, so I know that's allowed. Um, and, and some people have obviously installed car chargers in their garage or in their parking. Okay. Well... And one other thing I can add, Sonoma Clean Power has, um, will, will um, 
to their customers will sell a car charger and they have a couple different models at half the normal price. And once you install it and activate it, you get a rebate for the other half. So what you really are paying for is the electrician to install the car charger. Okay. Well, we've got another caller. Caller, you're live on the air. Can you hear me? Yep. Good morning. I had a question. I know we have the Tenant Protection Act of 2019, and there also is protections against evictions during COVID. But I'm wondering, you know, people are moving even during COVID. I left one of my apartments, <clears throat> sorry, left my apartment, one my apartment, and was one of my landlord's apartments last year to move into a um, senior housing project. When I left, my landlord raised the rent, and um, which I thought was really um, unfortunate for uh, someone who had to pay that high rent for the for the size of the place. And you're talking about getting federal assistance from the government to help uh, landlords. How are you going to make sure that the landlords don't find ways to work around and increase rents um, or find ways to evict people, or take advantage of federal subsidies. I mean, you know, landlords who own multiple properties have a lot of loopholes for, for tax, um, you know, tax loopholes, et cetera. Renters don't. So we're at the mercy of, of, of uh, property owners, a lot of them who don't live here. Um, a lot of them are are um, out of you know out of state or out of the area so how do you how do you deal with this um, subsidy that's going to come down to landlords who may not need it All right well the concept is to pay off um, unpaid rent um, that's owed and so um, I, I really hope that that is that that there is some some global settlement fund to, to do that because I really wouldn't want to see a bunch of people you know kicked out of their apartments once COVID concludes um, and, and these um, eviction moratoriums um, are ended. Um, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, now the vice president, when she was running for president, she floated uh, a proposal to um, create um, a, a tax write-off for people who pay rent. Uh, to mi mirror what um, is available for um, homeowners. And I don't know that that's going to happen, but I, I certainly hope that that gets some traction because honestly, it's not really fair for people who rent to um, have to pay their rent and pay income tax on the money that they're paying in rent. And whereas if you own a home, you can deduct the interest on, on your mortgage. So I hope that something along those lines, uh, I mean, we need probably a hundred different things on the housing front, but um, I, I welcome any of those ideas. And I think we've got another call on the line. Caller, you're live on the air. Thank you, Sarah. Um, thanks for the show. I just wanted to um, ask a question about uh, some of the circle of the larger uh, you know, prospect that's going on here. It seems that we are kind of a step ahead in some things, but we aren't utilizing we aren't utilizing that that step. I, um, so, it, it, as a matter of course, I mean, we would like to see more electrical infrastructure being required when we're putting up gas stations, and we keep putting up gas stations. We plan on cha changing to electrical, yet there's no county requirement for electrical to be put underneath these tons of concrete that's getting laid down and we're getting we got a Costco gas station, we got a gas station here and a gas station there. At the same time, we own our own power grid. At the same time, we have one of the best places in California to um, for uh solar electrical power. I mean, we have a very clear atmospheric, very little interference from fog. So I think the, the circle since 2017 has been, and these are going to provide jobs, that clean jobs, good jobs. We have a college that is really progressive, and we just are waiting and waiting and waiting for the county to come up with some, you know, guidelines to move us into the future. And I just, I just would like to see some more requirements at the county inspection level. Is this a possibility? 
So that's an interesting idea. I had not heard that idea before of, of requiring gas stations to install electric car chargers as part of their gas station. Um, I will ask county planning staff if they're aware of that anywhere else. Um, like I said, I, I really expect that we're going to continue to see additional car chargers installed in public places um, because the, there are grants available to install them. And as I mentioned, for people who have an electric car, they can get essentially for free um, a car charger for their home. Um, and, and actually, just to be clear, you can either have them hardwired or if you're, say, a renter, you can have it so it plugs into the wall. So um, so you could take it with you if you move. Right. Sounds like we've got a lot of ideas for electric infrastructure. Do we have another caller on the line? All right, caller, you're live on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, so going back to the housing thing and apartment and rentals, um, I was wondering, you know, so it seems like, you know, one of the arguments that the the renters, uh, the, the property owners have is that they have to pay their mortgages. Uh, so, you know, they can't afford to uh, to forego rent. And I was wondering if there's any ideas or pressure being put on, you know, it seems like that's where the Fed would have most influence would be to, to go to the banks that are holding the mortgages for these property owners and have some kind of way of pressuring the banks to give some kind of relief to the property owners contingent on uh, relief to the renters seems like that you know that would that's where the fed would have more pull anyway i was wondering if anybody if that approach has been has been um put out there and if there's any way that could uh be used as a way to help uh people that are just trying to pay their rent uh i think yeah i'm gonna get off the air here and let hear what you have to say okay bye I think that's an interesting idea. I've heard that um, that if homeowners um, had a significant drop in income due to COVID, that they've had the ability to have their um, their in, their payments um, deferred on some of their mortgages. I, I think it may be fairly rare that that's happened. I don't know how often that's been the case, but I haven't heard that that was um, put in place for for investment properties where someone had um, renters living in the property. So, uh, interesting idea. Um, there's obviously other costs to owning a piece of property besides the mortgage. Um, there's just cost of maintaining the property. And so um, some amount of rent has to be paid. And, and again, I think that's partly why there's been some discussion. Um, don't know if it's going to happen, but some discussion of some sort of global settlement fund uh, for those who could prove that they had a, um, a, a significant loss of income. Well, let me reintroduce you to our listeners. Um, I'm Sarah Wright, and we're talking with 4th District Supervisor Dan Jurdy. I'm sitting in for Karen Audubonny. And I also want to go back to the housing question. Um, in Ukiah today, there's another meeting about the Project Home Key at a motel in town. Um, and that's a state program to buy properties that are used for other purposes and build them into units for homeless people. And I'm wondering if you can fill us in on the emergency winter homeless shelter in Fort Bragg. We, I just read that um, they're kind of filling it in with a variety of different properties. And, and you recently had some work done on the ordinance to loosen the requirements for property owners who wanted to have a, a homeless shelter on their properties. So how is the homeless shelter situation on the coast doing right now? Uh, well, we did um, amend the code um, late last year to allow for um, a homeless shelter um, in the coastal zone, and um, but it turned out that that site um, was available, but it, but they weren't able to staff it up. So um, so uh, I'm actually not really clear what they what they've done since then. They haven't been in communication with me about what they're what they're doing. Is this another issue that the county could take on with some of the surplus that you were talking about? Could, could the county hire some staff? Or is, is it an issue of the, the qualified people just not being available? I, I think the biggest issue that I heard was that because of COVID, you know, it's a somewhat da dangerous uh, situation. You're in a confined space with people who are maybe at a higher likelihood of being um, infected with COVID. Um, and so I think they were having a difficulty um, just finding people who wanted to, to, to do that work. 
Um, well, we just had a caller, and I got a, a message from our operations director that someone would, would like you to give a quick rundown of which area the 4th District includes, aside from Fort Bragg. So the 4th and 5th Districts come together at Russian Gulch, Russian Gulch State Park. And if you were to go up the coast from Russian Gulch, it would be the entire coastline up the Humboldt County line. And um, then it would include, uh, obviously, all of those coastal communities north of Russian Gulch, Casper, Fort Bragg, Cleone, uh, Westport. And then you would uh, also include uh, Branscombe, which is just west of, of Laytonville, and um, the towns of Leggett and Piercy. And then there's a community called Whale Gulch, which is, um, you actually enter it from Humboldt County and you drive sort of southwest from Humboldt County into uh, the northern reach, reaches of Medicine County near Sinkion State Park. And since this interview has kind of a heavy emphasis on planning, there's a certain amount of your district that's in the coastal zone that we keep talking about. Um, can you give a definition of the coastal zone and what makes it so complicated? Yeah, so um, in the early 1970s, um, California voters uh, established the Coastal Act, and it was a way to protect the coast uh, from being um, subdivided into a bunch of, you know, residential subdivisions. There were a number of those that were pretty controversial. And so the Coastal Act um, require, it creates a, a sort of an overlay of additional um, review and um, plant protections um, in, that, that don't exist in other parts of California. And um, it's... Uh, become more complicated over time as um, you know, the, the list of plant protected plants um, has grown quite a bit. Uh, I believe it's several pages long. And, um, and so for the most part, people who develop in the coastal zone um, very often have to have a botanical study. Whereas if you built the same house or same project somewhere else, you don't have to. Um, and so it just tends to add, significant lead time uh, for an applicant to hire extra consultants to prepare a proposal that then would go to the county planning department. So before the application even goes to the planning department, they have to um, invest quite a bit of money and time um, just to get an application in. Right. Um, well, I want to let our listeners know that if you have a question for Supervisor Dan Jurdy, you can call in at 895-2448. And I'd like to... Um, touch on a completely different topic that came up yesterday, and that was the, the Public Safety Advisory Committee. Um, and over the summer during the Black Lives Matter actions, I was hearing people talk about this Public Safety Committee, and my impression was that it was going to be a law enforcement oversight committee specifically for the sheriff and that possibly the members would even have subpoena powers. Um, and so I was a little surprised yesterday to hear the discussion be so wide ranging about all the different aspects of public safety. And it looks like um, the subpoena powers are probably not going to be in there, um, which would align this new advisory body with 1185, a new state law, giving counties and local municipalities the, the option of setting up a committee like this. So can you talk a little bit about what this advisory committee is going to be and um, and some of the, the reasons that you supported it yesterday. Yeah, so we responded, I think, fairly quickly to the request for some sort of um, public citizens committee. And so Supervisor Hashak and I became an ad hoc. We met with the sheriff. We met with um, a number of community members who were active in the Black Lives Matter um, uh, campaigns um, throughout the county. And we tried to develop um, a, a citizens committee that would um, allow for much more transparency and information back and forth between the um, uh, sheriff's office and other public safety agencies with the public. Um, our concern is that the sheriff's office is not the only agency that's providing um, public safety and, and has an you know, interaction with the public. And we didn't want to uh, see it restricted just to the sheriff's office because um, so many of these, I mean, we even have um, uh, health and human service employees who are, in a sense, brought in to public safety events sometimes, uh, maybe to, maybe they know the person involved. And so uh, we just wanted to make sure it was broad enough that everybody could be involved. We actually, I don't believe we were aware of that law at the time that we were um, drafting um, the the, pro the proposed structure. Um, it then came back in ordinance, um, in draft ordinance form, um, the this last meeting Tuesday. So there was a little bit of a lag time between our work on that committee and then the, um, 
the proposal that came in. And obviously we learned, I learned at that meeting, and I think it was only brought to us yesterday's meeting that, that there was this new state law passed. Um, so we, we, where we're leaving it is up to the committee to um, discuss. Um, it, are there some aspects of this new state law that they want to incorporate into um, their or to their uh, citizens advisory committee and and um, you know we'll consider whatever they bring forward so what they bring forward would that be like an ordinance or a code that would then you know go to the planning commission and come back to the board of supervisors how would how would that get solidified uh, yeah so if it required an ordinance then it would just go directly to the board of supervisors because it's not a land use issue okay. uh, but but yeah so if 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 that's what they recommend, then we'll consider it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> state laws change all the time. It, you know, you, if we waited for all state laws to be complete on any topic, we would never take action. Great. So how would people get onto this committee? Is it going to be um, appointed by the supervisors or will people apply? And how many people are you thinking will be on it? So the structure we created was... Um, there is one county supervisor, and uh, at the beginning of this year, we appointed Supervisor Hashak. He was, again, kind of the main author of this item. Um, he's, he will be on it. The sheriff or the sheriff's designee will be on it. And then there will be five members of the public um, uh, appointed uh, by each of the five supervisors. So when people want to apply for a position, there's an application online on the county website. Um, and so people hopefully can find that if they do a Google search. And um, they just submit their application. And um, if you're in District 4, um, I'll consider appointing you. What are you looking for in an appointee? I think I want someone who would have um, sort of a, a, a broad understanding of, of, of both the community and um, how public safety interacts with um, the public and with other agencies. Um, you know, we'll undoubtedly get people with different life experiences on the board. Um, so we're not, I would assume we're not going to get five people who are nearly identical in demographic or background. Um, so yeah, just, just looking for someone who will be a solid committee member. Great. And, um, I do want to go back to the planning department, even though that's, um, land use. I understand that a couple of seats have been eliminated on the planning department and that there's a whole new configuration. So can you talk about that since they're going to be pretty active in this, this cannabis ordinance that we talked about earlier in the hour? So are you talking about the staffing or the planning commission? I, I believe that it's a couple of industry seats got taken off of the planning commission. Yeah. So we're talking about the planning commission. So at yesterday's meeting, um, supervisors Hashak and Williams um, proposed that we um, sort of streamline the county planning commission from seven members to five uh, Mendocino County has historically had um, two members um, who were not appointed by the individual supervisors. So um, you would have five members appointed by each supervisor, one each district, and then two members were historically appointed um, to represent either timber or um, agriculture. Um, that was apparently pretty uncommon in California. And um, uh, while I personally didn't see there were any particular problems with that in terms of the way they, cause I, I think the individuals that we had appointed were, you know, very credible, very um, sincere, very, you know, knowledgeable people. Um, I had to agree that, you know, if you were to create a planning commission from scratch today in 2021, you probably would just have the five planning commissioners, one appointed by each district. So um, I supported that and it, it passed on a four to one vote. Have you heard anything from the commissioners who are about to lose their seats? Uh, I checked my email this morning before the interview. I didn't see anything. Okay. Well, can, can you talk a little bit more about what we can do with all this extra money? We talked, we heard a lot from callers with ideas about this $22 million in PG&E funds. And um, I know that later on in the year, you mentioned that the priorities for the county are going to be talked about for this this big reserve, but can you go into a little bit more detail about that since there's, there's always so much work for the county to do? <laughs> well, um, maybe I should go back to um, about maybe five years ago, um, Supervisor McCallan suggested that we um, 
create a community enrichment fund. I think, I don't know if that was the technical term, but something like that. And I think a lot of wealthier counties have those things. So we had set aside some amount of money, maybe it was $200,000 that we, um, you know, kind of put out a call for proposals. And uh, there were uh, probably $800,000 requested by nonprofits. <laughs> and so it was... Um, uh, and after that experience, I think we, we thought, eh, I don't know if we want to do this again, <laughs> because, because there were just so many requests. Um, uh, from my perspective, from the coast, I noticed that there was well over, um, like double the amount of money that was available was requested just by UKIA non-based nonprofits. And so the board had agreed after we had allocated some amount of money um, to something that was taken off the top the rest of the money would be allocated by supervisor district. So it was distributed throughout the county. So um, in my case, um, I think it was $5,000 went to the Piercy Community Center. Um, $5,000 went to the Noya Food Forest. $5,000 went to the Coast Botanical Gardens. And I think $5,000 went to the um, Family Resource Center in Fort Bragg, Safe Passage. So, but... You know, the truth is, if we if we widely advertise, which I just have maybe made a mistake by doing that, mentioning the twenty two million dollars, we could easily see probably five hundred million dollars requests <laughs> come to the county. <laughs> I mean, the needs are so great, um, and some of these things just are so, on such a big scale; they just have to be addressed by the state and federal government. I mean, the federal government, unlike the state and county government and city government, actually has the ability to deficit spend. You know, um, so they have they have the ability to help boost the economy in a recession in a way that local government can't. Well, I think we have time for one last caller. Caller, you're live on the air. Is that me? Yep. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question for the supervisor, actually more of a comment. Um, the PG&E settlement came about primarily because of losses to Redwood Valley, nine people died, huge, huge losses of property. And my my comment is simply that it seems to me that with the PG&E settlement being based on that event, that or at least partially on that event, that it would be appropriate for some of those funds to go directly to Redwood Valley. I'm on the Municipal Advisory Council here in Redwood Valley, and we have many needs too, and very little political power. It would be really lovely to see some of that money come this way. Thank you very much. I, I I couldn't I couldn't argue with that at all. I mean, um, it it was based on that um, those there were two events that the settlement was based on, and that's why I I've been talking about it in terms of um, infrastructure that are preparing the county for future events, responding to future events, and um, and uh, so future disaster events, which may or may not be um, you know PG&E or electrical related. So, um, so I think we need to start wrapping up pretty soon. Is that right, Rich? Okay. Well, are there any last words that that you'd like to have to um, to share with our listeners, Supervisor Dan Dirty? Yeah. Well, um, uh, we have. I, I think I think the county is um, going to come through this um, COVID recession in fairly good position. I, what I really want to see is that the county's um, able to handle all the community issues that um, that we have. Um, and that means that we need to have the right staffing in the right places. Um, and so that's why our um, review of the CEO, our strategic planning process that we're going to have, and, and this um, planning for the PhD settlement funds are all part of um, our work to, to kind of help Mendocino County come out of this recession in the best possible way. And just one last quick question, since we had so much interest about this PG&E settlement fund, do you have about a timeline for when that's going to be taken up this year? I think it'll probably be in the second half of this year. So, um, so, uh, so sometime after July, just because I think it'll, it'll probably, like I said, we're going to do the review, the CEO, the, the uh, strategic planning process. And then I think we're going to do the, um, you know, the planning for how to, how to invest the, um, the PG&E money. So I think it'll just right. be sometime after July. Well, thank you so much. I'm Sarah Wright, sitting in for Karen Audubonny, and we've just been speaking with 4th District Supervisor Dan Dirty. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you.